new from Scouted Football, introducing the Scouted Notebook, long-form, in-depth journalism, storytelling, and analysis from our team of expert writers. Sign up at scoutednotebook.com for the very best we have to offer, including consistent and curated updates on the players we think you should be excited about, detailed coverage of youth football tournaments other outlets aren't paying attention to, such as the Under-20 World Cup, Under-17 Euros, and plenty more. A Scouted Notebook subscription guarantees you'll receive exclusive updates on and early access to Scouted, our premium print magazine, which makes a return in 2023, as well as complete access to the digital archive of our legacy print magazine, The Handbook, all 12 volumes. Scouted, the home of independent, in-depth storytelling and analysis on football's next generation. Hello, welcome back to the Scouted Football Podcast. Um, the Under-20 World Cup has finished. Uruguay were the winners of this year's edition, 2023, the first edition since 2019. Um, if you haven't listened to the preview episode that we did before the, the finals began, um, do get on over there to, to have a listen to some of the players that, that Lou and Steve of, of Scouted fame um, picked out before the tournament, and then we'll see who they picked out afterwards. Uh, in this episode, um, Italy were the runners-up. Cesare Casadei, uh, the Chelsea player, won the golden ball and uh, the golden boot with seven goals. Um, we had Israel at their first ever Under-20 World Cup finals, finishing third ahead of South Korea, who finished fourth um, after being runners-up in 2019. Um, but it was a surprise for pre-tournament favourites Brazil, who were knocked out by Israel in the quarterfinals. Um, but let's get into uh, some of the 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 storylines of this year's Under-20 World Cup finals. Um, Steve, Lou, welcome back to the podcast. How are we, uh, how are we doing? Very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm good as well, thank you. Uh, good to be back. Yeah, a very good uh, tournament to, to cover. Um, the less said about the pitch at the uh, Estadio Diego Armando Maradona in La Plata, the better. But um, it was an entertaining finals. There was, as expected, some, some countries and some players from those countries um, who we hadn't heard of before who really stood out. And um, yeah, I think Uruguay probably deserved winners. I know that might rankle with Steve a little bit, considering they beat Italy in the final. But on the whole, they were probably the most consistent side across the entire tournament. No, I like that you bring up the uh, the pitch because that's probably a good good place to start. I think some of the pitches that probably I think there was four stadiums, if I'm right, and I think at two or three of them it was absolutely abysmal. And and the the stadium which hosted the the semis and the final was particularly bad. And I think it definitely suited kind of those more scrappy teams and and Uruguay really brought it every single game physically. Uh, they took territory really well. They were super aggressive off the ball um, and then had some some sparks in attack and in midfield that would, you know, push them forward and, and they took their moments. So uh, I agree Uruguay deserved winners. I think... As far as Italy concerned, considering the the lack of personnel that they could have potentially had at this tournament, I think that they'll still be extremely uh, happy with their second place, as well as potentially uncovering a, a few extra players that might not have got such a run out had the full complement of players been available. Yeah, I think the pitches is or the pitches are a good place to start. Um, the one at La Plata, in, in La Plata, especially where the final was played, where both the semi-finals were played, 
a ton of the knockout stage games and the group stage games were played. Um, that one was particularly bad. It had a real material effect on the quality of games. Um, I think it's also worth noting the schedule. I think Uruguay and Italy played seven games in, what was it, uh, 20-odd days, 22, 23 days or something like that. So obviously it's a heavy workload on on young players coming off domestic seasons themselves. So that's another factor. Um, but yeah, I think Uruguay were the deserved winners. Just in the final alone, they completely dominated Italy in pretty much every in pretty much every facet. Um, Italy didn't really get a sniff, and Uruguay won it again with the fourth one nil of the tournament and their sixth clean sheet of the tournament in seven games. So I think that sort of sums up what sort of team they are, and it, um, yeah, it's representative of a of a good tournament team. It should be noted as well for for Uruguay that they were really constantly forced to rotate most of their attack the whole tournament. Uh, a few guys up front in Andres Ferrari and uh, Matias Abaldo went down uh, with injuries probably due to the pitch in the group stage. And then they were forced to kind of rotate a few more guys through the attack. Uh, Duarte up front did a really good job, even though he's not really a proper number nine. And then they lost Luciano Rodriguez uh, to a red card in the uh, round of 16 game against the Gambia and he missed the quarters and the semi. So they, by the end of the tournament, they were essentially uh, operating with a rotated attack completely except for Franco Gonzalez. So uh, that was another big hurdle for them to overcome and, and you know they ended up not really having to rely on massive attacking output because their midfield and defense were just able to completely dominate games and park themselves uh, in good positions up the pitch. The right back, Ponte, was... Uh, injured in the in the knockout, so yeah, they were missing players all over the pitch as well, and forced into into changes and and didn't really uh, skip a beat. They just took control of games physically very early on, especially against Italy. They took over the midfield. They didn't give Casade, who'd been so strong throughout the tournament, they didn't give him the space to breathe. And Italy basically weren't able to progress the ball up the pitch for for the whole game. Barely registered a shot, and uh, yeah, in Uruguay just kind of rode the game out and, and got their goal when they got it late in the game and and uh, deservedly took home the, t- the title. One of the things that stood out for, for me when I watched Uruguay, and I didn't watch all of their games, um, but in particular the, the game which they, they lost against England, um, was just how tenacious they were. They, the, the, I don't think the England players really got to grips with that for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the game. They were being kicked all over. And while, yes, the, the scrappy teams, you know, that Yes, the pitch definitely benefited them. I, I still feel as though that collective mentality that we do always associate with Uruguayan teams, um, that definitely will have played a part, especially against you know young players who maybe aren't used to that, that sort of treatment. I think the term is Garua Charua. I think that's the term that they use in, in Uruguay to, to represent that sort of doggedness, that tenaciousness. And yeah, I think you've pretty much summed it up. It was no more evident than in the final where they started really fast. They completely squeezed Italy out of the game. Italy had absolutely no time on the ball in deep, in deep uh, areas of the pitch. So they, I, I don't remember one spell of decent Italy possession in, in the opposition half at all. Um, so yeah, I think that Garua Chorua, as they, as they call it in Uruguay, is, uh, is, is the bedrock of the team. And yeah, built around a really solid defence. They got some senior-ready bodies too as well, like the captain... Fabricio Diaz in, in defensive midfield has played over a hundred times at senior level, and you could tell 
uh, just the aggressive nature that he, you know, would barge into into duels, kind of set him apart from a lot of uh, other players at the tournament. And then, you know, even that their defense was massive. Uh, at left back, Alamaturo, who's normally a, a centre back, was shunted out to to the left and ended up being the one of the best players at the tournament. And and him at left back versus uh, against some of the um, you know, smaller wingers in the competition. He just had complete physical dominance and then kind of translated that going forward, just bursting through players and, and attacking the final third. So there's probably, you know, a massive physical edge uh, that they had, you know, from their midfield and their, their defence and they used that to really uh, camp territory and impose themselves on the game through the midfield. Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to say was, you know, Alan Maturo, um, you know, at left back, took home the silver ball um, obviously beaten to the golden ball by uh, Casa Day, but that typically does always happen with attacking players at these tournaments. I think it does speak volumes of the the quality, both individual and collective, of the Uruguay team, that it was Maturo at left-back who was who's taking home essentially the runners-up prize for the best player at the tournament. 100%. Um, it's also worth noting that he's not really naturally in, the, in that position. He's more of a centre-back. Um, I was pretty much completely new to him watching him this tournament. And he's quite peculiar in a lot of ways. His build is very, is very distinctive. He's built a bit like a fridge. His legs are quite spindly, but his his upper body is so square and, and just massive, and it and it really sticks out on the pitch when you're watching him. But he uses it really well as well in the way that he can just barge players off the ball. He's not a particularly good ball striker. I think in terms of like passing and 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 all that sort of stuff, he's quite erratic. He's quite clunky. But he sort of gets stuff done in his own weird little ways. And yeah, there was, I think, throughout the knockout stages, especially, he really raised the game. Um, he really started to dominate teams when he was in defensive phases. And then when he was starting to uh, carry the ball up into higher areas as well. Um, so yeah, Maturo for a left back come centre back to, to win the silver ball. That's pretty good going. And I, th- I think he grew going forward. Um throughout the tournament as well because even for example in that semi-final against South Korea it was his like shot that hit the post that kind of def- deflected and, and ended up leading uh, to, to Uruguay's goal and we kind of didn't really see that in the group stage but he started to to find positions in the final third and, and started either running through players or or taking it to the byline or getting different angles that he hadn't got earlier so I think he kind of started to grow into the into the role much better um, and yeah he completely dominated the the latter stages let's talk about the runners up then Italy uh, for a little bit then because they were again another successful team at this tournament um I think they were among the the were they, were they among the highest scorers or, or have I completely made that up um but they were they were particularly entertaining um, lots of individual players who certainly caught my eye the first time of watching them um but I think the best place to begin is is with Casade, the the Chelsea midfielder who uh, took home the golden ball and the golden boot. Um, seven goals in this tournament. And yeah, I think um, certainly announced himself to, to you know, a, a, a more global audience. Because I'm not saying that, you know, the Under-20 World Cup is is a, uh, a really well-followed and, and well-covered tournament. But for um, for anybody or any Chelsea fans who hadn't watched Casadei before, you know, to see him score in five of those seven games, they certainly will have been encouraged. Yeah, I think... Well, we, we spoke about this in the in the preview. Um, one of his big skills is his ability to crash the box at set pieces, um, corners, and 
you know, impose himself physically. His ability to score from headers is fantastic. Um, and yeah, we just basically saw that from the start of the tournament and watched it carry uh, carry its way through. Um, I yeah, leave this tournament basically feeling not that much different to how I felt about him before. I think he's got enormous potential given his qualities both uh, in possession and as a goal scorer and then out of possession. I think defensively, all tournament, he was really, really solid, uses his his size really well. Um, I think there's probably a few learnings to take for him from the, the final in, just ter- in terms of his ability to just make quick decisions, playing out of pressure. Um, Uruguay really put the work into quickly pressing and marking him out of the game as soon as he received received possession. And he was pretty crucial throughout the whole tournament alongside Baldanzi to their ball progression through midfield. So uh, he really struggled in in the final, which was unfortunate after such a such a strong tournament. But he was uh yeah, nonetheless deserving of the the golden ball and the golden boot. And uh I'm I'm hoping in the next twelve to, to twenty four months we'll see a whole lot more of him in uh, in senior football. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with him now this summer going back to Chelsea under a new coach now in Pochettino. Um, I expect he'll get a, a decent look in in, in pre-season, uh, in the pre-season. But after that, I'd probably anticipate a loan would probably be, be the most likely and probably the best outcome for him for the next 12 months. Um, I think, yeah, what he does well, he does really well. Um, but what he does well doesn't quite translate to what Chelsea need in midfield right now, I don't think. I think this has been a running discussion that we've been having in the Discord channel, especially um, me and Stevie on different sides of the argument. But um, I think we saw in the final that some of his shortcomings in in possession play as a passer, as someone who can get on the ball when his team needs him to get on the ball in deeper areas and put his foot on the ball and control things. I, I just don't think he has that in his skill set right now. He He's obviously young. It's something that he can develop, but in terms of going straight back to Chelsea and and making an, an impact, which the numbers suggest he he could be able to do, I just don't think it will will happen as soon as people think. I think that he did struggle in the final just because they sent so much um, attention to him. I think some of his shortcomings in possession are have a little bit oversold. We've seen him play roles kind of deeper in midfield than he played at this tournament at last year's under-19 years, for example, where he was equally as good, didn't score as many goals because uh, Fabio Miretti was playing uh, more f- uh, further up the pitch. Um, but he brings you so many qualities off the ball as well that I don't think some sort of like midfield hybrid forward role is the best fit. Um maybe you'll be able to maximize what you can get out of him from a goals point of view and it still is worthwhile. But I think to fully maximize him as a player, he'll eventually settle into some kind of number eight role. But yeah, he obviously needs to continue to um, work on that just ability to just get the ball and receive under pressure and make decisions quickly and evade pressure quickly. Um, But yeah, I, I don't think all that is as far off as some people maybe think. And I, yeah, from all accounts, his loan at Reading was really, really strong last year. And I think he could step up and, and play a top five league level, perhaps not at Chelsea, but at least on loan somewhere. Yeah. And I think it's important that wherever he does go, it, it is somewhere which suits that that style of play that 
that you know he thrives in that crashing the box that you've been you've been talking about um and i do think you know I, i'm sure I, sh- I share the sentiment with you but you know players coming off the back of a successful um under 20 world cup you know even as successful as casa days has been to break into the chelsea team would be a, a very very big ask especially when you look at the situation surrounding carney chukwemeka as well um but in in terms of the, the other Italian players, Lou, I know you you quite liked Matteo Prati um, at Spal as well, another midfielder um, who had is is that sort of a, a circuitous route to um, to to you know this youth international level. Yeah, another one that was completely new to me this tournament. Um, I think I tweeted during the final that if if you were just flat out watching that game without any contextual knowledge. And you were asked which midfielder, which Italian midfielder was signed by Chelsea for 20 million euro, wherever it was. I think most would likely reply with Matteo Prati. Um, as you say, he's he's a guy that's come from uh, a more a, a different route. Then um, started at Cesena in the academy there. Then he moved on to Ravenna in Serie D. He played a full season of first team football there at 17, 18 years old. Uh, got a move up to Spal in Serie B this season. They've now been relegated and he's a complete newcomer to the underage teams of Italy. Um, I think he made his under-20 debut back in March. So he was definitely an interesting one. Um, yeah, I'm sure Stevie has others from the Italian team to, to speak about. Yeah, there's a few. Um, I think Baldanzi is probably the main one that stands out. Uh, he was given much more responsibility at this tournament, given that uh, Fabio Miretti uh, wasn't released to play. So he was basically handed the reins to the the number 10 role. And again, apart from the final, he he alongside Casade were so, so good for basically the rest of the six matches, maybe a little bit of a blip against Nigeria in the group stage. But yeah, his ability to transition the ball really quickly from uh, from midfield to attack as a, as a carrier uh, really, really stood out. Uh, he's a good ball striker as well. He's got a nice left foot. Probably can add a bit more goal scoring impact from the edge of the box to his game. Um, and I think just something like some moment of magic like that was something that Italy really would have uh, relished in the in the final just to relieve some pressure. Um, but yeah, he had a pretty good season at uh, Empoli last season. Uh, and I think he'll be one that uh, a lot of teams start to look at this summer, maybe not for a move now, but definitely in the next 12 months. Uh, moving on to the third place team of this tournament. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, it was a debutant at under 20 World Cups. Uh, Israel, off the back of being runners up at the under 19 European Championships last summer, um, came into this one, didn't really know what to expect, thought they'd do reasonably okay. But I think third place is certainly a, a an overachievement. Um, considering that they didn't have Oscar Gluch, as as we discussed in the previous episode, um, Lou they they defeated Brazil, the pre-tournament favourites, in the quarterfinals by three goals to two uh, in extra time. Um, you watched that game, you know who who really stood out for you in in that fixture, but also on the whole of the tournament for for Israel. Yeah, so as you said, they're coming back. They came into this tournament off the back of being runners up and and perhaps the surprise team at the under-19 Euro. Um, given that, I'm, I'm not so sure this was much of a surprise. They're, if you've watched them, they're, they're a really good tournament team. They're, they're well-coached, they're compact, they have good profiles across the pitch to play the style that they that they do. Um, 
And I think we just saw more of it in this in this tournament. Um, in terms of standouts, it was a lot of the same of the of last year's under nineteen Euro team. Really, um, obviously, no Gluck, which is uh, a massive miss. But they got by with with guys like Ty Abed up front uh, in in attack. They had Dor Turgerman, um as a as a sort of target striker who was quite physical, quite mobile. He didn't score many goals, but he definitely gave his side a good outlet. Um, in midfield, you had Eli Madmon and uh, Eliam Kanchapolsky, who were, <clears throat> I think that that double pivot of a midfield will go down in in uh, youth tournament folklore a little bit for for its quality for its just persistence and an ever presentness, if that's a word. Um, Madmon, as we t- we talked about him quite a bit before, he's quite a, a Nicholas Dorsey style um, midfielder, quite compact, very tenacious. He can get on the ball, he can spread it about. Kanchapolsky is fairly similar, a bit more rangy, but he has a similar skill set. He gives they, uh, both of them together give a really good base in in midfield, and then at the back then they've just got solid players. They've got Roy Revivo, a left back who's impressed last year in the under nineteen Euro, pressed again in in this tournament. Just a solid two way left back. Stav Lemkin, perhaps the the unsung hero of, of this tournament, I think. Just in terms of again the base that he gives gives Israel both as a as a brave defender. He's quite mobile. I've seen him compared to Sergio Ramos, which is um Obviously, he's not of the same potential or quality, but you, there are some stylistic similarities. Um, yeah, but I think instead of talking about the the individuals, I think it's just definitely a, a case of Israel being a really good collective side. The group is is really cohesive. They're, they're obviously good friends with each other. They're, they're well coached. Um, yeah, so it's not a surprise. They're a good tournament team and and they've done well again. It was uh, it was South Korea who they beat in the third place playoff um, to to finish third. But the the Koreans themselves uh, two or rather back to back performances of of, of a high quality at the um, under twenty World Cup. They were runners up to Ukraine in two thousand and nineteen, um, and that was a team I, I became particularly fond of. Um, I can't say I watched too much of the Koreans this time around, but um, I know there were a few who caught your eye, and the bronze ball winner was Lee Sung Won. Um, in in midfield again, um, so I mean, w- w- what was it about the the South Koreans which which helped them get to the semi-finals again? Essentially, I think it was kind of not too different from the 2019 run, except that they probably just had a bit better talent spread across the park. But on uh, this occasion, there was a a few more kind of willing participants to go with uh, Kim Ji Soo in defence, who we highlighted pre-tournament. He was really, really, really good. But uh, further afield, they had a lot of quality to make uh, good use of moments. And and that was kind of the way they played. They sat back really deep. We saw it from the, the moment they took to the pitch against France that they were going to be a team that kind of sat in the mid mid to low block as much as they could and uh, hopefully not get pressed too deep. But, but when they took their moments, uh, they could break really, really quickly. Um, and Lee Sung-won was the catalyst of that through midfield. Uh, he was the one that would really ignite the breaks uh, with his ball carrying, with his passing out wide to the the likes of Kim Yong Hak and uh, and Bay, our man Bay, uh, and um, and yeah, from there they they kind of just kept doing the same thing. They were probably the most devastating counter attacking team in the tournament uh, in their game against uh, was it Ecuador in the knockouts. 
uh, in the first half, they they scored first 60 minutes or so. I think they scored three goals. We're just all just lightning counterattacks and the Ecuadorians are pushing up the pitch, pushing up the pitch, uh, trying to find an opening in, in the Koreans like rock solid defense. And then, uh, yeah, moments later it'd be up the other end and they'd be flicking it around and then score some amazing goal. Um, and so, yeah, that was super exciting to watch, even though they were a team that, that tried to sit back and, and uh, slow the game down. But when they got going, they were, they were lightning. Um, and so, yeah, a few players there that were really, really good. I think uh, Kim Jisoo is going to have a massive career. Um, he can play, yeah, as Lou said before the tournament started, both sides of his body, barely missed a tackle the whole tournament, just looks so, so composed. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think a, a move that was already beckoning for him uh, potentially this summer will be very much forthcoming. Very interesting indeed. Uh, yeah, uh, Kim Jisoo currently at Songnam in um, in the J League, uh, sorry, in the K League. Um, so yeah, definitely want to, to keep an eye out uh, there. Um, looking ahead to the honourable mentions section of this uh, this episode, um, because whilst you guys have, have drawn up a team in the tournament, which we'll get to very shortly, um, there are a few players who haven't made that list. Um, but also did do reasonably well at this tournament. Um, and I'm thinking of one in particular um, for, for the Gambians, um, Adama Bojang, um, who I found out yesterday is, is represented by um, Cherno Samba, uh, Championship Manager legend Cherno Samba. Um, but he has been um, linked with some some big teams on the back of this this tournament. Uh, Three million euros, I think, is sort of the, the price that has been that has been named uh, by uh, our friend Ed Aaron's at uh, the Guardian. Um, what was it about Bojang's tournament that that made you think, or rather, Bojang's tournament and his performance at the Afcon Under Twenties, um, that really makes you think that he is somebody who could make that that step up from you know t- a team like Steve Biko FC um, to a, a, a bigger or more developmental European league. I think basically the commodity for of, of a true number nine is like so high. The value in, in finding a, a proper number nine is so high that if you can see a, a development project at 3 million euros with, you know, really, really high potential ceiling, uh, then it's kind of a no brainer to at least be sniffing around and, and seeing if you can, can bring him to your club. Um, the first thing that instantly stood out with, with Bojang was just the, the rangy athleticism. Uh, he's got those really long legs. It's very, very early days. Uh, Victor Osimhen, reminiscent. Uh, he's got those long strides, can eat up the turf so, so quick. But he's also um, not completely lanky and and without substance as a uh, in terms of his physicality when it comes to you know dueling and when the game slows down. So that was kind of the first part of it that really stood out. But when he gets on the ball, he's got so much quality as well. Um, you know, the Gambians got out of the group and topped their group, but they weren't necessarily a completely dominant offensive force, but he was basically part of everything that they had good going forward. Um, and as a creator too, he showed some interesting uh, aspects as well that we probably wouldn't associate with someone like Ossiemen. So I think there's a, definitely a huge project player there um that's maybe not quite ready to like step up and play you know big senior football but you know potentially either signed by a bigger club and loaned out or going to a development league um in belgium or the netherlands or somewhere like that that's more 
Uh, accommodating to, to young strikers is definitely something that should be on the cards. Um, because, yeah, I think he's got all the tools to be a really, really dominant player if he can put it all together. Absolutely, and I, I agree with you. I only watched the highlights of that, but um, in a nut of, of Bojang, but in a nutshell, that that pretty much sums up the the type of player that he that he seems to be. That when he when you first watch him, um, another player who uh, did score a number of goals at this tournament, uh, more than Bojang actually, was uh, Oscar Cortez, uh, the Millonarios uh, Colombian player. Um, he got four goals, one of which was a penalty, um, but two of them were quite clutch, or rather, well, one one was clutch, two in the the stoppage time. Um, one with the win over Israel and then one in stoppage time at the end of the, the resounding 5-1 win over Slovakia. Um, did either of you manage to, to watch much of Cortes? Well, what was the uh, the secret behind his, his goal scoring? Because from from my, my very limited re- Wikipedia research, I can see that he's got a decent enough record um, at uh, Millonarios as well. Yeah, so I think this is one of the players that we, we spoke about in the preview pod. Um, I've watched him. I've followed him this this year after his um, under twenty Sudamericano performances. He's come back and done pretty well for Millonarios at club level. So he was one of the guys that I was really keen to watch at this tournament, and he pretty much lived up to expectation. Um, I think in the preview pod I said he reminds me a bit of Rashalison. He has that sort of wiry athleticism. But he's a bit more, has much more creative upside than Richarlison. Um, I think we saw that in this tournament where he could get on the ball on the, in the left-hand side spaces, cutting it onto his right onto his right foot and, and just slip runners into 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 good areas. That was a prominent skill that, that he displayed at this tournament. Um, as you say, he scored some clutch goals, just popping up at, at key moments to to give his team the win. Um, Colombia in general would would. Perhaps my favourite team to watch at this tournament. Um, Yasser Spria would be a, another honourable mention from Watford. He was really good. His his talent just shone through in pretty much every touch. Um, anytime he got on the ball, uh, Colombia came alive with his ability to to needle through really small spaces, but also be that link in transition. Um, his final action just wasn't quite there consistently. Had it been, he probably would have had a, a a breakout tournament in terms of just everyone getting eyes on him. Um, Andres Salazar at left back was maybe one of my discoveries of the tournament. Never watched him before, um, but he's an absolute monster from left back, two way left back. He played pretty much every minute of this tournament off the back of playing every minute at the end of twenty Sudamericano. And that's a lot of minutes in in quite a short space of time, but his intensity never dropped. Um, he's definitely one that clubs should be looking at if they, if um, smaller clubs in in top five leagues are looking for a left back. Um, Gustavo Puerta would be another one from from Colombia. Bayer Leverkusen signed him after the Sudamericano. They farmed him out to Nuremberg in in the second division of Germany straight away, which was a bit of a weird move really, but they've already announced that they're bringing him back for pre-season with Xabi Alonso and I wouldn't be surprised if he does play his way into a first-team role, at least on the periphery of that first team. So, yeah, Colombia were good. Oscar Cortez was was good. Um, yeah. And it looks like he's going to Lens as well, I believe. Indeed, indeed. I think 
did we mention this on the on the pod did, as well? Yeah, because of the the ownership. Yeah, yeah, same ownership group. So Mionario so in the same ownership group with Lance, and it looks like Lance are going to get him. Um, that will definitely be an interesting step up. I'm not sure how much he's going to play initially, given that that Lance have have just qualified for the Champions League. They have quite a set, settled group. Um, but yeah, that should be an inse- an exciting one to follow. A bit of a better one than Wilker Farinez. <laughs> I can see Steve is, is itching to unmute his microphone here. Uh, Small goalkeeper. My boy, my boy. Okay, moving on to the team of the tournament that, that you guys have drawn up. Um, Cortez doesn't make the striker position. Um, neither does Adama Bojang, hence why they were in the honorable, honorable mentions section. Um, but we do have Marcos Leonardo. Uh, for Brazil, who is uh, leading the line there. Steve, do you want to take us through some of the the players in this team of the tournament um, that uh, we haven't discussed so far? Yeah, Marcos Leonardo up front uh, for Brazil. Really, really strong tournament from him. I think probably the most ready-made, dynamic number nine that we saw the whole tournament. Probably the most like senior ready, and I believe he already plays senior minutes, so... It uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but just a, an all-rounder, um, can do bits of everything, is physical enough, is quick enough, is a good finisher. Um, yeah, it was, you know, Brazil were scoring goals for fun kind of early in the tournament and, and he was behind a lot of it uh, in the air as well. Um, he's just got, yeah, bits and pieces of everything. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that scrolling through Twitter, I've never really seen any kind of concrete links with him going anywhere um it's it's kind of interesting one because uh yeah before the tournament there was a kind of a fifa drop on like a technical report on the on the uh world cup from last year and it talked about the the lack of under nines uh under nines number nines rather (laughs) um coming through the the system and and playing like big games and and all that kind of thing but i think what we've seen from this tournament is there's potential for there to be a a bit of a renaissance of that role um but it just means that you need to have those bigger players that can now play much more in the you know in the build up phase and just be be able to contribute more than just scoring goals. And I think that kind of thing is what we're starting to see a lot more with with strikers at, at youth level, um, and less of the kind of stick them in the box and let them you know be two foot taller than the people that are marking them and, and score heaps of goals, but then kind of enter into senior football and not really have the skill set to, to thrive. Whereas, yeah, someone like Marcos Leonardo, he's got you know much more of a mixed bag, can hit the channels, can can do all the interplay and then can get in the box and score. So a super valuable skill set. And I'm sure we'll be hearing a fair bit more about him in the coming years. I think I think we should spend a little bit of time discussing Fabrizio Diaz as well. I know we mentioned him earlier, but he's the defensive midfielder for Uruguay at the base of this scouted team of the tournament. Um, and we did touch on him in the preview pod. But on the back of this tournament, what would you say? You know, is is your are your your lasting thoughts of him? And you know, is it any is it any wonder that he's attracting interest from such such big clubs? No, definitely not. Um... I think he sort of does sum up the Uruguay team as a, as a collective. He has that um, that tenacity, that garuacharua, as we said, um, off the ball. He's very committed, very very vocal on the pitch. He he leads his team through situations, but he also has that that bit of poise as well in possession to to progress play, to to calm things down when it's needed. And um, yeah, it's absolutely not a surprise that. 
that he is getting these links to to the likes of uh, Barcelona and, and stuff like that. Whether a move to somewhere like Barca would be would be good for him is, is another thing. I don't think it would be. I think it would be much better if he if he gets in on a on a much lower level initially in a in a top five league, probably Spain um, or Italy, perhaps one of the big three in Portugal. Um, that would be a much more that would be a step that would be more conducive to to, to developing than than being kept under wraps at Barca. Um, it's also worth mentioning Facundo Gonzalez as well from Uruguay, left-sided centre-back from Valencia. Um, he had a really good tournament at the back, um, as pretty much every defender and goalkeeper for Uruguay did. Um, he's a left-footed centre-back, um, very calm in what he does, um, not the most elegant on the ball, not the most dominant defensively, but you just get stuff done really well. Um, he was a rock. And um, yeah, I think the right back in our team of the tournament is worth mentioning as well. Artur, I think Stevie will speak a bit more about him. Yeah, uh, Artur hadn't watched him before this tournament, but I had seen that he was already uh, signed to move to Bayer Leverkusen in the summer. Uh, and yeah, pretty much instantly, uh, he left a, an impression as a really, really effective two-way fullback. Uh, he could deputise on the left as well as he did a couple of times. Uh, and then him and Robert Renan were suspended for the quarterfinal against Israel that Brazil lost. So um, not that I didn't watch the game, but I'm sure the, there was some impact of, of those two, which, who were the real pillars of the, the Brazilian defence uh, being out. But yeah, Artur, solid two ways. Uh, I think defensively, it was probably the most impressive. Um, really held up. Uh, physically really well in duels, but uh, probably most impressively was his ability to kind of just sit back and assess situations as, as they unfolded in, in front of him, would let the winger come to him. He wouldn't overcommit, uh, but then his timing was really, really good into the challenge and, and making sure that he won the ball. Uh, and then, yeah, going forward is a real live wire, whether it was kind of taking the ball and carrying through midfield and, and trying to, to overload central spaces or as a more traditional fullback hitting the byline and and getting balls in for Marcos Leonardo. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, there's so much to like about him. Uh, during one of the games, the commentator actually remarked that uh, he apparently had told uh, Bayer Leverkusen when they signed him that he was going to be the the fastest foreigner that they've signed to to uh, to ever learn German. So uh, clearly a bit of a mentality monster as well if he's, uh, you know, committing to that. Probably German, not the easiest language to, to learn as a Portuguese speaker. Um, so, yeah liking what I've seen and what I've heard about him and uh, it'll be interesting to see him take the step into into senior football and I think at a team like Leverkusen he could probably find uh, a bit of love and potentially some some good minutes next season. Well that's exactly what we want for these players that are developing at the under 20 World Cup we want them to find clubs that are going to are going to are going to love them. Um and yeah I think that pretty much just rounds off this uh this review. Uh, episode of the Under-20 World Cup. Uh, another excellent tournament. There are plenty more to come uh, this summer, including the Under-21 European Championships and the Under-19 Euros uh, as well. But if you've liked the, the the discussion on here and you'd like to read a little bit more in-depth, um, then do get on over to Substack, the Scouted Notebook, um, where we will, or rather Lou and Steve, um, have been curating uh, some of the best writing. I'd, I'd probably say the best writing on the Under-20 World Cup um, over the past few weeks um, and 
yeah, please do consider subscribing. Uh, and as well, please do consider contributing to uh, the Scouted 001 um, project, uh, our Kickstarter, that is to uh, to bring back bring back the books. Uh, and yeah, we'd, we'd love to, to be able to, to do bigger and better things with with your support and your backing i don't know if steve you have any uh you have any parting comments for the listeners no no thank you all for listening as always uh yeah if you like what we do please contribute to to the the kickstarter campaign to to bring back the magazine we've got a huge amount of things planned for it i think joe you were down in belgium last week sorting out an interview uh obviously all the player profiles we're hoping to bring back uh, and yeah, if you like our, our week-to-week stuff covering all the, the youth tournaments, we've got uh, weekly guest columns as well, then then check out our, our sub stack and uh, go subscribe over there as well. Absolutely. Um, I can only echo what Steve is, is saying there. But no, thank you very much once again for tuning in to the Scouted Football Podcast. Uh, I've been Joe Donahue um, with Lou Davies and Stephen Ganavis. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in the coming weeks with more episodes, um, more discussion on youth international tournaments, as well as the developing stories and transfers from around the world of football over the summer. Um, take care. Bye for now. New from Scouted Football, introducing the Scouted Notebook, long-form, in-depth journalism, storytelling and analysis from our team of expert writers. Sign up at scoutednotebook.com for the very best we have to offer, including consistent and curated updates on the players we think you should be excited about, detailed coverage of youth football tournaments other outlets aren't paying attention to, such as the Under-20 World Cup, Under-17 Euros and plenty more. A Scouted Notebook subscription guarantees you'll receive exclusive updates on and early access to Scouted, our premium print magazine, which makes a return in 2023, as well as complete access to the digital archive of our legacy print magazine, The Handbook, all 12 volumes. Scouted, the home of independent, in-depth storytelling and analysis on football's next generation.